You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everyone, welcome to episode number 399 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. As y'all will recall, in the last episode, it was Saturday, September 19, 1863, the second day of the Battle of Chickamauga. And on the Confederate side, After Walker arrived on the scene of the fighting in the vicinity of Jay's Mill, he found that two of his brigades had already been roughly handled by the Yankees. In response, Walker brought up his other division, commanded by St. John Little. Little's men achieved some initial success, routing all three brigades of Baird's division of Federals. But then Little's rebels, in turn, were thrown back by a counterattack by some Yankees from Brannan's division. By the end of the last episode, Walker needed help, and so Confederate Army Commander Braxton Bragg decided to feed Frank Cheatham's large 5th Brigade Division into the fight. And on the Federal side, two formations that had been sent to 14th Corps Commander George Thomas as reinforcements were also about to enter the fray. Those were Johnson's 20th Corps Division and Palmer's 21st Corps Division. In any case, when Thomas ordered Johnson and Palmer forward to replace Baird's and Brannan's exhausted troops, that meant the second phase of the day's fighting was about to start, with six fresh Federal brigades now poised to clash with Cheatham's five Confederate brigades. No one seemed to know where our position was. All was doubt and uncertainty. The ground was wooded, broken with low hills and irregular knolls. The woods were open, but grown here and there with baffling stretches of dense underbrush. There were very few small fields and indistinct roads. Palmer had taken position to the eastward of a road running north and south. He guessed it to be Chattanooga Road, but did not know. Suddenly, firing began away to our left. Presently, our brigade commander, Colonel King, rode up and in slow, deliberate tones put the brigade in motion. We moved by the double quick around a low, wooded knoll, across an open field, face to the right, 
and advanced in line of battle. The wave of battle rolled down the line toward us. There seemed to be an interval at our right. We were moved by the flank to fill it. It was the worst possible region in which to maneuver an army, being without landmarks and so thickly wooded it was impossible to preserve any alignment. Besides, there seemed to be an utter lack of a fixed and definite plan and woeful ignorance of the field. Soldiers are quick to note such things, and one of the regiment, seeing a group of officers in consultation, said he guessed they were pitching pennies to decide which way the brigade should front. By and by, the turmoil deepened around us. There was no chance to use artillery except at close range. On our whole front, there was hardly a place where a range of 300 yards could be secured. Communication between the flanks was almost impossible. The winding roads were full of lost staff officers. The commander of a regiment rarely saw both flanks of his command at once. Even companies became broken in the thickets and, taking different directions, were lost to each other. It is folly to attempt to unravel the tangled web of that two days fight. More than a hundred accounts of it have been prepared. Hardly two of them are alike in essentials. Lieutenant Albion Torgy, 105th Ohio Infantry, Edward King's Brigade, 14th Corps, Army of the Cumberland. We like that account and thought we'd share it, even though it doesn't directly correlate to any of the action taking place right now, but it does pretty much perfectly illustrate the often confused and frequently chaotic nature of the combat at Chickamauga. Also, y'all may have noticed that, so far with this story arc, we've been tracking the course of the fighting during the Battle of Chickamauga by focusing our attention, for the most part, on what was going on at the division and brigade level. Some of you may recall that way back in the early days of the podcast, when we talked about how Civil War armies were organized, we said that brigades were the principal tactical formations on a battlefield. In other words, during a battle, as far as maneuvering and fighting, whether on offense or defense, it was the brigade that was of primary importance. Admittedly, thanks to the rank-and-file soldier's attachment to his state regiment, and thanks to the popularity of post-war regimental histories, it's usually the individual regiment that stands center stage in the popular imagination, while the brigade the regiment was attached to is usually just a footnote. But, and we really can't emphasize this enough, When it came to maneuvering and fighting on a battlefield, it was the brigade that for all practical purposes was the primary tactical formation for offense and defense. And as far as storytelling here on the podcast, keeping track of the action on a brigade level also seems to be the best way to make sense of what was happening at Chickamauga, as division after division was fed into the fight and as brigade after brigade was caught up in the fierce combat.
Composed of five brigades, the nearly all-Tennessee division of 42-year-old Frank Cheatham was actually larger than Walker's small corps. Cheatham's men had great confidence in, and affection for, their hot-tempered and hard-drinking commander. Cheatham was a colorful figure with the shady past in California mining camps and Tennessee politics. Here, as part of the Army of Tennessee, he was a bitter enemy of Braxton Bragg. At Stones River, Cheatham's performance was a disaster and lent credence to reports he'd been blind drunk and had even fallen off his horse. Almost all of Cheatham's men were from Tennessee, and most had been demoralized by the results of the Tullahoma campaign, which forced them to leave their homes and families behind federal lines. As a result, desertion had plagued the division during the retreat from Tullahoma. Back at the end of April, Cheatham's then four brigades numbered more than 8,000 men. Now, in September, those same four brigades numbered less than 5,200 bayonets. Even the addition of Brigadier General John Jackson's brigade of Georgians and Mississippians only brought Cheatham's strength up to 7,000. Frank Cheatham led his division into action shortly after noon. Marching north in the general direction of Winfrey Field and then moving to the west through the woods, each of the three leading brigades quickly lost all but the most tenuous contact with one another. That meant rather than entering the fight as a cohesive mass, Cheatham's leading elements would instead advance rather haphazardly as circumstances dictated. Walker's chief of staff, Captain Joseph Cummings, was sent to warn Cheatham's leading brigade that the Federals had routed St. John Little's division. Cheatham's leading brigade was Jackson's, and it was marching north along the Alexander's Bridge Road, still in a column, looking for friendly troops to support, when Cummings galloped up with the news that the Yankees were just ahead. At that unexpected news, Jackson quickly shook his brigade out into line of battle facing west. Uncertainty and confusion marked the hasty deployment. For example, Colonel Charles Daniel of the 5th Georgia on the brigade's left didn't send out skirmishers because he believed some of Walker's Confederates were still out in front of his position, when in reality there was no one in front of Jackson's brigade except Federals. Colonel Daniel discovered this for himself when his regiment advanced and almost immediately stumbled into a line of enemy infantry. The Federals leveled their muskets at the Georgians and opened fire. Daniel admitted, quote, This confused my command considerably. The Federals belonged to Croxton's brigade. Y'all may recall as the Yankees had stopped and reorganized their lines after the rout of St. John Little's Confederates, Croxton's brigade had been the only federal formation to keep moving forward behind the retreating rebels. As Croxton's men pushed forward, they were delighted to come across seven pieces of artillery around Winfrey Field that had been lost in the earlier fighting. Croxton's brigade was moving cautiously down the Alexander's Bridge Road when it had encountered Jackson's advancing rebels. Well, if the Confederates were surprised by the collision, so were Croxton's men. Some of them had just started to haul off the rescued guns, but now here were yet more of the enemy. 
To Croxton's tired men, it must have seemed as if there were no end to the Confederates who were advancing through the woods. As Jackson's rebels pressed forward, John Croxton ordered his six regiments to fall back about 300 yards to a ridge where they made a stand and halted the enemy advance. But even as the action between Jackson's rebels and Croxton's Yankees settled into a stalemate, more troops from both sides were maneuvering to enter the battle. On the Federal side, Johnson's division was moving up to relieve Croxton's tired men, while on the Confederate side, more of Cheatham's brigades were swinging into line on Jackson's left, extending the front southward. All of that meant that the fighting was about to heat up yet again. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Despite the sound of fighting somewhere in the woods ahead, Sergeant Isaac Young of the 89th Illinois in Brigadier General August Willock's brigade later recalled an oddly peaceful scene in Kelly Field as the troops from Johnson's division of Federals deployed for action. Quote, The birds were singing, the butterflies were fluttering about, and a cow stood under a tree to our right, chewing her cud. However, within minutes, Sergeant Young and his comrades in the 89th Illinois left that peaceful scene behind and, together with the rest of Johnson's division, stepped off into the woods. Before going into action, Richard Johnson deployed his division in what, by mid-1863, was a standard federal formation, two brigades side-by-side up front, with a third brigade formed behind in support. Here, Willock's brigade was up front on the right, while Colonel Philemon Baldwin's was on the left. Colonel Joseph Dodge's brigade trailed behind them. As Johnson deployed his division, George Thomas couldn't give him a clear picture of what was happening. Thomas simply rode with Johnson to the southern edge of Kelly Field shortly after 12 o'clock, waved his arm toward the woods to the southeast, 
and told Johnson to advance and attack the rebels wherever he found them. Those simple orders would have been too vague for many officers, but for Johnson, they were enough. The 36-year-old West Pointer had served under Thomas on the frontier before the war, and George Thomas had complete confidence in Richard Johnson's judgment. August Willock's brigade was the first of Johnson's troops to find the Confederates. Like many officers and men in the Federal armies, the 52-year-old Willock was a German immigrant, but no ordinary one. Born Johann August Ernst von Willock, he had once been an officer in the Prussian army, but although born into the German nobility, he was fiercely committed to the ideals of socialism. Leaving the military to pursue a political life, Willock scorned those who failed to live up to his ideals, so much so that he quarreled with Karl Marx over the future of the movement and once challenged Marx to a duel. Willock put his military background to good use in the revolution of 1848-49 in Europe, but after that uprising was crushed, he, like many other German revolutionaries, emigrated to America. Settling in Cincinnati, he edited a German-language newspaper. Here, in the Civil War, his military skills once again proved their worth, and he was one of the best brigade commanders in the Army of the Cumberland. Passing through the lines of Croxton's tired men, Willock's brigade took over the fight against Jackson's Confederates. After Croxton had fallen back, the two sides had been content to settle into a static firefight there amongst the trees, but the feisty Willock was determined to break the stalemate. After blasting the rebels with musketry and artillery, he had his men fix bayonets and ordered them to advance. Now it was Jackson's turn to fall back, and his men started a slow retreat in the face of Willock's advance. But the rebels kept their heads and didn't break and run, and so managed to keep the Yankees at arm's length as they fell back. While that was happening, Palmer's division of Federals was also entering the battle, a short distance to the south and west. A few minutes earlier, as John Palmer was about to start his advance eastward from the Lafayette Road, he received a message from Rosecrans. Old Rosie seemed to understand that Brannon's and Baird's divisions had run into trouble because of Confederates advancing from the southeast and flanking the Federal battle lines that faced due east. So Rosecrans suggested that Johnson advance his brigades and echelon, that is, with the left brigade furthest forward, the center brigade a couple of hundred yards behind and to the right, and the right brigade still further back. From the echelon formation, Palmer would be able to swing easily into a line that faced southeast, or bring up his trailing brigades to fight directly to the east. Well, Palmer took Rosecrans' advice, so, as we'll see, when Cheatham's Confederates moved up from the southeast toward Brock Field, Palmer was able to counter the rebel movement, meet them head-on, and stop them.
The forward movement of Palmer's division in Echelon meant that Brigadier General William Hazen's brigade was leading the advance on the left, or northern end, of Palmer's line. The 32-year-old Hazen was a West Pointer and one of the more competent brigadiers on the battlefield. Hazen's four regiments of Hoosiers, Buckeyes, and Kentuckians advanced about three-quarters of a mile through the woods before encountering Confederates. And then, wrote Hazen, quote, A terrific contest was added to the already severe battle on our left. That severe battle on Hazen's left was Willick's fight against Jackson's Confederates, and when Willick ordered his brigade forward, Hazen did the same, and he reported, quote, The enemy gave ground freely. Hazen pushed forward until he reached Brock Field, a large L-shaped clearing southwest of Winfrey Field and southeast of Kelly Field. He halted his command on a small rise in the middle of the field and engaged in a heavy exchange of fire with the Tennesseans from one of Cheatham's brigades, led by Brigadier General Preston Smith. Smith's six Tennessee regiments and a battalion of sharpshooters had advanced on the left of Jackson's brigade and met little opposition until running into Hazen's Federals. Upon reaching Brock Field, though, Captain Alfred Fielder of the 12th Tennessee remembered that, quote, we were engaged in an awful fight with the enemy disputing every inch of ground. Frank Cheatham initially seems to have intended to advance his division with three brigades on line forward and two brigades following in support. In reality, though, the hurried, somewhat haphazard commitment of his forward elements, coupled with the an echelon advance of Palmer's division of Federals, meant that Cheatham's leading brigades were fed into the fight piecemeal. Federal tactical doctrine had evolved so that, by this point in the war, brigades adopted a double formation, with two regiments in front and two behind. However, Confederate tactical doctrine still called for forming all regiments in a brigade in a single line of battle. What that meant here at Chickamauga is that each rebel brigade had roughly twice the frontage of its Yankee counterpart. And what that meant here for Cheatham is that a short time after 1 p.m., his three leading brigades, commanded by Jackson, Smith, and Brigadier General Marcus Wright, were engaged with, or about to be engaged with, two full federal divisions those of Johnson and Palmer. And that's where we'll hit the pause button this time. But with this episode, we got to start on the second phase of the fighting on the second day of the battle. And with the next show, episode number 400, we'll pick right back up with the action here between Cheatham's Confederates and Johnson's and Palmer's Federals. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is Civil War Infantry Tactics, Training, Combat, and Small Unit Effectiveness by Earl J. Hess. This is actually a re-recommendation, but with this episode, since we were talking quite a bit about the importance of brigades and about the tactical maneuvering and fighting on the battlefield and whatnot, we thought it might be a good time to trot it out again. 
Uh, if you're interested in exploring the subject of Civil War infantry tactics on your own, then Hess's book is the place to start. Don't forget you can find a complete list of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. And then as the curtain comes down on this show, we want to take a minute to say thank you to the newest members of the Strawfoot Brigade. So thanks to Terry H., Candace L., Jim G., Christy H., Dave M., Alan L., and Gary N. Thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Rich and I do hope that you join us again next time, but until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.